Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. the Den of Geek podcast, featuring commentary on the latest news from denofgeek.com, as well as other behind-the-scenes content from your favorite movies, TV shows, and more. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and this is episode 21, the late edition of G News for November 2018, which this time around mostly takes a look at the latest TV and movie news, although we run the gamut from nonfiction to blockbusters and from animation to revivals. Yeah, we got a bunch of really cool news items to talk about, some of which, you know, have some personal meaning for us and we also have a bonus item that we're very very excited to share with you and that is an interview with none other than george takei of star trek fame you know him as lieutenant sulu captain sulu perhaps if you (laughs) watch the movies and he's got a fathom event broadway play that's going to be showing up in theaters called allegiance which was a play a musical he did back in 2015 so i can't wait to share that with you But let's go ahead and get into the news for the latter half of November. Okay, Mike, uh, calendars are one of my favorite things to peruse on the Den of Geek website. And, you know, you and I have acknowledged many times that we're in the midst of a television renaissance. Viewer choices have never been stronger. But in addition to simply finding time to watch everything that appeals to us, keeping track of when and where shows are going to air can be just as challenging. Yeah. Even for the shows we review, I constantly have to look back at the calendar. Now that said, here are some highlights from den of geeks, current piece TV premiere date, 2018 to 2019 calendar. So I'm going to start with one of my favorites and it's a show I review for den of geek, arguably the greatest historical drama of all time. Vikings. And it returned to the History Channel on Wednesday, November 28th at 9 p.m. a couple days ago, picks up where it left off 10 months ago. Now, you might be saying 10 months. (laughs) Yeah. Now, Vikings has traditionally split its 20 episode seasons evenly into parts A and B with a lengthy gap in between, though, truth be told, 10 months is the longest that we've had to wait. But. Season 5B picks up with the aftermath of the Civil War that we left in episode 510. So if you're a Vikings fan, you'll certainly want to be around and and, um, hopefully you set your DVR for that. And if you're new to it, start binging. Well, that's the thing about uh, calendars like this. I mean, I think a lot of people would miss the fact that their show has come back, if not for calendars like this. For me, I, I can't tell you how many things on this list I had forgotten about. Now, another one that I hadn't forgotten about, because you and I are going to be talking about it in Sci-Fi Fidelity, on Sunday, December 2nd at 10 p.m., we're going to get the series premiere of the George R.R. Martin property, Night Flyers. Airing on Sci-Fi, this is the story that follows a team of scientists who embark on a journey into space aboard an advanced ship called the Night Flyer to make first contact with alien life forms. 
However, when terrifying and violent events occur, the team begins to question each other, realize there's something on board the night flyer with them. And I don't know about you, but I went back to our experience with Extant. Yeah, and this has been seen a lot uh, all the way back to Alien and Aliens and those movies, but it's got a cool formula. There's a review out for Night Flyer, an advanced spoiler-free review that you can check out. But yeah, that's a good one to look forward to. Right, and it's going to be interesting to see how they handle that scenario because, as you said, it's certainly something we've seen in, in different incarnations. Now, one of 2017's surprise science fiction offerings turned out to be the star's multiple universe tale counterpart starring J.K. Simmons, Olivia Williams, and Harry Lloyd, among others. And if you don't know the show, and of course I know you do because you cover it for Den of Geek, Mm -hmm. uh, Simmons' character, Howard Silk, works for the agency that oversees a crossing point to a parallel Earth, which is referred to as the Prime World. And it's a copy of Silk's World, which was created by East German scientists in 1987. And when we say created, I don't think they did it deliberately, as I recall. No, it was, and we really don't have an answer to the origins of the parallel world yet. Right. But these two parallel worlds have been diverging ever since that event in 1987. So Counterpart returns Sunday, December 9th at 9 p.m. And as I said, it's on stars. So it's a it's a premium pay channel. So if you don't have stars, you're well, I, I would say you're out of luck, but you know, <laughs> there are ways. <laughs> there are ways. Michael, I know you're excited for the return on Wednesday, January 23rd of the magicians on sci-fi because it gives you something else you have to write about. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I love reviewing that show. I, I, I was going to say, I know you love that show, <laughs> but for the complete rundown, because I just really saying scratch the surface isn't even fair. Check out TV premiere dates, 2018, 2019 calendar on the Den of Geek website. Right. And as I mentioned, we are talking about a couple of different TV shows. Um, and I, I'm interested to hear one of the ones that you picked up that's nonfiction. I'm going into the vault a little bit for my first TV story because Northern Exposure is something that I watched in my college years. And guess what? There's a revival coming. <laughs> I had a huge crush on Janine Turner, who played Bush pilot Maggie O'Connell with her must short hair and that tiny little beauty mark on her temple. But when I read that there would be a Northern Exposure revival, I thought, as I often do with such projects, how the heck are you going to do that? Because, you know, how do you keep a revival from feeling like an extended reunion episode, which is what they used to do back in the 20th century? <laughs> they didn't they didn't do these extended revivals. Right. But at least this is a show that I feel, as I know you do, is worthy of a yeah. reboot or a revival or whatever they're going to call it. Revival being the fact that the some of the original actors are involved rather than rebooting with new actors. And I'm not sure if Janine Turner is coming on board, but original star Rob Morrow is set to return along show creators Joshua Brand and John Falsey for a brand new season of Northern Exposure, which will see Morrow's character, Dr. Joel Fleischman, heading back to the icy cold landscapes of Sicily, Alaska. They say it's going to be for the funeral of an old friend. And he'll also be reuniting with some of his former neighbors, of course while interacting with a new set of quirky characters. So I really just have to hope that Maggie is part of the reunion and not the guest of honor at the funeral. <laughs> I'm thinking maybe it's more likely to be either John Cullum's Holling Van Coor that has died or Barry Corbin's Maurice Minifield. 
So fingers crossed. Well, I just Googled Janine Turner images, so I hope she's part of the show. <laughs> yes. Just saying. And she's aged well as well, I have to say. Now, Brand is currently bashing out a script for a first episode of this proposed revival, and Morrow's charming co-star, John Corbett, who played, as you recall, small-town radio personality Chris Stevens, he's currently on board as a producer. Now, I, I assume that means he'll also be in the show, but uh, who knows? Now, Northern Exposure is basically joining the latest list of revival series for CBS, which brought back Murphy Brown this fall. And Northern Exposure, which was originally a summer replacement series, but then it ran for 110 episodes across six seasons from 1990 to 95. The series won 27 Emmy Awards during that span. So as you said, very much worthy as it won the Emmy in 1992 for Outstanding Drama. So this is what I'm looking forward to. I hope they don't screw it up. But if you do want to read more about this revival, check out Kirsten Howard's article, Northern Exposure Revival Moving Forward with Rob Morrow. All right. Well, speaking of you hope they don't screw it up, uh, let's move into the film arena. And fans of the superhero genre face no dearth of options on both the big and small screens. And while it's common knowledge that Marvel continues to widen its lead over rival DC, which is the home of icons Superman and Batman, DC's still hanging in there. Yeah. It's got its partnership with the CW, and that's still going strong, but it's been very difficult to compete with Marvel on the big screen. So how did DC's latest movie offer, Aquaman, fare with critics and fans who've been treated to advanced screenings some three weeks before its December 21st release? Now, director James Wan and most of the cast, Jason Momoa, Amber Heard, Patrick Wilson, Dolph Lundgren, were all in attendance at the London premiere to show off the latest entry in the DC Extended Universe. And as you can imagine, after the screening, a tweet storm followed. So (laughs) what did people think? And this is spoiler free, of course. So let's start with Den of Geek editor-in-chief, Mike Cicchini who tweeted that Aquaman leans hard into its 80s fantasy adventure movie vibe far more than superhero elements, and it works. It's another step in the right direction for DCEU and shows how different and distinct the tones of these movies can be while still existing together. And you and I both know Mike has high standards, so... He does, and he's a DC fan through and through, but he's fair. (laughs) Now, BBC film critic Ollie Plum tweeted, a lot of people are going to see hashtag Aquaman and say, what the hell am I watching? People are going to react, air quotes, to this film. It's big and bold and a bit bonkers. I'm glad I've seen it, but I think more than a few won't be. It's an Aquaman movie, so, you know, it's out there. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's true. It's fair to say that the audience reviews might be mixed. But I think that's actually a good sign for a DC advance review because they're not saying it sucks, which means it's already going to have a mixed reaction anyway. So let's let the chips fall where they may. Right. And then finally, Peter Scaretta of Slash Film says it's better than expected. Feels like a Marvel phase one movie in a good way. Okay. It's at its best when it's having fun and not taking itself too seriously. Black Manta is a great villain that comic book fans will love. So for more reactions to Aquaman, which is set to be released to the general public on December 21st, check out Richard Jordan's piece, Aquaman First Reactions, What Did People Think? 
So he he pulled together a bunch of the tweets from the critics out there. Is that what that article is all about? Yeah, critics and I think a few fans here and there, but okay. for the most part, critics. Well, that's pretty cool. Well, I guess I'll go ahead and switch to my comic book movie story as well. This time from Sony and Marvel. We'll go ahead and go into Mike Cicchini's piece, Spider Women Animated Movie in Development. But before we get into that story, you know that the big uh, review has just come in recently for Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which is an animated movie premiering on December 14th, featuring Miles Morales as the web slinger. And not only do we have editor-in-chief Mike Cicchini's five-star review for this movie, but other critics are calling it not only the best Spider-Man movie or the best superhero movie of the year, but some are even saying it's just simply one of the best movies of 2018, period. Quite an auspicious start to Sony's proposed Spider-Verse slate of animated features. Ignoring the box office success of Venom, that's good, but it was far from a critical darling for Sony. So this makes the announcement of a Spider-Women project, and yes, I did say Spider-Women, not Spider-Woman. This project that's in development is even more exciting after the critical acclaim that Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is getting in advance of its premiere. And remember, we even talked to... The Englishman in San Diego, remember for San Diego Comic Con? I do. And he was looking forward to this movie as well. Well, who do you think the target audience is for this? I think it's a very broad uh, audience because it is animated, but it's also, and it's got, you know, kids in it. Spider-Man is famously one of the youngest origin stories for a superhero, but I think it's for the adults as well. But Lauren Montgomery, one of the showrunners of Netflix and DreamWorks, excellent Voltron legendary defender, is likely to direct the Spider-Women animated movie project, and the untitled movie will gather the female heroes of the Spider-Man universe into one adventure with a focus on three generations of women with Spidey powers. Although Mike admits that he's not entirely sure what the generational aspect of the characters might be. It's a safe bet, though, that one of the Spider-Women featured has to be Spider-Gwen, a recent Marvel Comics success who will make her big screen debut in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse in December. While the list of Lady Spideys hasn't been confirmed yet, Mike has his speculation. He thinks we'll see Jessica Drew Spider-Woman on screen again. She had an animated series of her own in the late 70s. And perhaps we'll see Cindy Silk Moon as well. This young woman gained spider powers from a bite from the same radioactive spider that gave Peter Parker his powers, And Silk has already been optioned for a movie of her own, which we actually talked about before on this podcast, but it's not clear if one movie will have any effect on the other. Amy Pascal and Avi Arad will produce the Spider-Women project, but it also sounds like Phil Lord and Chris Miller of Into the Spider-Verse, and also, gosh, those two are everywhere these days. They're also going to have a say in this. There's no release date for this Spider-Women project yet, but Mike plans to update the article with more information as it becomes available. So definitely stay tuned for this, especially given how much advanced buzz Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is getting. I think we're, we're in for a really exciting animated slate of movies that are top-notch. Cool. And for me, not a big animation guy after uh, my foray into Castlevania which obviously is a completely separate <laughs> realm. Still, I'm, I'm ready to give it a try. 
All right. Now, we don't often talk about the Travel Channel on the Den of Geek podcast or Sci-Fi Fidelity <laughs> for that matter. But no. when Megan Fox's name is attached to a project, <laughs> we men generally sit up and take notice. And no, that wasn't a euphemism. <laughs> well, maybe it was. <laughs> the Jennifer's Body actress considers herself a seeker and is willing to dig through the ruins on the Travel Channel's new series, Legends of the Lost with Megan Fox. Now, in the series, Fox will re-examine some of the world's most enduring legends and lore, according to the press statement. And in four hour-long episodes, she's going to meet with experts, archaeologists, and peruse priceless texts and fascinating artifacts to uncover answers about the age-old mysteries that still perplex scientists and archaeologists to this day. You interested so far? <laughs> well, definitely. I, I think that the only thing that turned me off about this particular project when I read about it was I looked at the trailer and her voiceover narration is kind of lacking. And that's kind of key for a nonfiction show. She seems perfectly engaged in what she's looking at in the live action shots, but the voiceover is just kind of like reading from a script. So I'm cautiously optimistic. I definitely think this would be a good way for her to reinvent herself a bit and Obviously, she's going to draw a big audience no matter what she does. Yeah. And speaking about the show, she said, as an actress, I've been lucky enough to peek behind the curtain at some of these ancient sites. And it's ignited an insatiable curiosity in me to learn more about these lost worlds that are deep in our distant past, Fox says in the trailer that you just mentioned for the series. She also says all across the world, our ancient ancestors left behind towering mysteries and enchanting myths. Now, perhaps as a reaction to everyone's favorite shield maiden, Lagertha, from History's Vikings, see how I <laughs> tied fit in that there. in, Fox is going to travel to England and Scandinavia in the series premiere to investigate tales that claim women fought side by side with the men during the first millennium. Then in a later episode, she'll investigate the mysteries of Stonehenge. Was it an ancient calendar, the world's first supercomputer, or a Stone Age hospital, or Perhaps it was all or none of the above. So if you're into learning more about some of the world's enduring mysteries, or if you just want to check out what Megan Fox is wearing, <laughs> Legends of the Lost with Megan Fox premieres at 8 p.m. December 4th on the Travel Channel. And for much more about the new show, including other episodes, Tony Sokol's piece, Legends of the Lost with Megan Fox Unearths History, will undoubtedly whet your appetite for this new show. Yeah, and I, I think that that's uh, a good move on the Travel Channel's part. I enjoy Travel Channel for um, Andrew Zimmern's cooking shows, his travels and things like that. So that's definitely a channel that gets some play in my house. And also speaking from a personal perspective, I had a story that I'm going to end with that has a personal connection because Roald Dahl was basically my favorite author in my youth to the point where I actually wrote to him in fifth grade. And this was about... I guess eight years or so before he died to ask him if the wonderful story of Henry sugar was real because in the opening lines of that story, it suggests that it is a, a true story. <laughs> so at the time I bought it hook, line and sinker. And I also have a great love for just about every movie adaptation from Roald Dahl that's currently in existence. And Matilda is a particular favorite of my daughter who also happens to be in fifth grade. So I'm quite happy to learn that Netflix is going to give the doll universe, as they call it, another go in an animated event series that will revisit some familiar works and a few lesser known doll titles. 
In partnership with the Roald Doll Story Company, Netflix will animate classics like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator, Matilda, the BFG, the Twits, and even my beloved Henry Sugar story. But some of the more obscure titles in the event series include George's Marvelous Medicine, Boy Tales of Childhood, Going Solo, The Enormous Crocodile, The Giraffe and the Pelly and Me, <laughs> Billy and the Minpins, The Magic Finger, SEO Trot, Dirty Beasts, and Rhyme Stew, some of which I have never even heard of. So this will be an interesting animated series. Yeah, I'm from the era where we had Dr. Seuss and that was about it. And, <laughs> yeah, and we right. were happy to have it. Now, Roald Dahl's widow, Felicity, who brought the Roald Dahl Story Company on board with this project, expressed her support in a statement saying, Our mission, which is purposefully lofty, is for as many children as possible around the world to experience the unique magic and positive message of Roald Dahl's stories. This partnership with Netflix marks a significant move toward making that possible and is an incredibly exciting new chapter for the Roald Dahl Story Company. Roald would, I know, be thrilled. And the news of the animated event series comes alongside reboot movies already in the works elsewhere, including yet another Willy Wonka movie and a film adaptation of The Witches. And of course, we can't help but notice that Netflix is really diving deep in with its animated projects. You mentioned Castlevania, and here we're, we've got this one called an event series, but we also hear this mention of a doll universe, which almost suggests like they're trying to create maybe even a unified set of stories that, that cross over between each other. Who knows? But production for this animated project begins in 2019, and I will be keeping a close eye on this one. But if you want to read more, you want to check out Netflix set for a slate of Roald doll animated adaptations by Joseph Baxter on Den of Geek website. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. All right, we're going to go ahead, though, and go into probably one of the most prestigious guests we've had on any of our podcasts, and that's George Takei, of course, of Star Trek fame. Now, Allegiance which is what he's here to talk to us about, was a play that ran from November of 2015 until February of 2016, which came about when George Takei told a couple of playwrights about his experience in a Japanese internment camp when he was ages five to nine during World War II. Now, Takei is, of course, known as Sulu from Star Trek, but he has since made a name for himself as a political activist and social media influencer, which makes the timing of this Fathom Events movie theater premiere of his play very interesting and symbolic on many levels. 
Now, Fathom Events will present Allegiance to Broadway, which is a behind-the-scenes documentary about how the play Allegiance came to New York's elite theater district. That's going to come out on December 4th in select theaters, and the Allegiance play itself will premiere in theaters on December 11th. So let's go ahead and take a listen to our interview with George Takei. We're very honored to be talking to the one and only George Takei today about his Broadway musical Allegiance, which is coming to theaters via Fathom Events, along with a documentary about the making of the play. Welcome to the podcast, George. Good to be chatting with you. All right. Well, uh, let me go ahead and start with the play itself, which is sort of ironic because I looked at the documentary first and I was just so captivated by that that I couldn't wait to get to the play. But Allegiance is about... You hadn't seen it on Broadway. Well, that's true. No, I know. I wish we could have. (laughs) Where do you guys live? In Baltimore, Maryland. Oh, that's not too far from New York. (laughs) You know, there are some people that flew in from the West Coast to New York to see it. As a matter of fact, there was a 92-year-old lady from uh, Stockton, California, uh, who flew... uh, Well, her daughter brought her to New York and saw Allegiance and came backstage to talk to me. And the 92-year-old lady told me that she was my father's secretary in the uh, internment camp we were in in the swamps of Arkansas. My father was... Uh, the uh, camp was broken up into uh, blocks, and uh, my father uh, was the block manager in the block that we were in, and he had uh, a secretary. And I remember this young girl who was seated in my father's office typing away at this machine called a typewriter. I'd <laughs> never seen that, you know. I was a five-year-old kid, and I was absolutely fascinated by by that machine, and whenever she looked uh, the other way, I would tap on that uh, keyboard a little bit. <laughs> and she told me that this 92-year-old lady was that uh, young girl that was my father's secretary. That's amazing. And so I had all these wonderful, heartwarming experiences while doing Allegiance Live. And so if a 92-year-old lady can come from the West Coast <laughs> all the way to New York, I don't know why two young men, husky and robust, <laughs> couldn't take the train up to uh, New York City. I do that from Washington, D.C. all the time and pass by Baltimore. Shame on you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we properly scolded. Well, if any of the listeners don't know, Allegiance is about a family's experience in the United States and Japanese internment camps during World War II. Uh, and- uh, no, no, no. And that, that this is a term I've been fighting all my life. Japanese internment camps were run by the government of Japan. Our, the internment camp we were in was run by the United States Army on the order of the President of the United States and housed American citizens of Japanese ancestry right. in the United States. They were not Japanese internment camps. They were Japanese-American internment camps. So please get that term correctly. For sure. I'm holding a, a little history lesson for you right here on, <laughs> on your that's podcast. Right. <laughs> well, and I think that's one of the beauties of both the documentary And the play is that it does enlighten so many of us that, I I mean, I actually feel like I'm fairly well informed historically, but just as you point out, uh, you know, that there are certainly some gaps in, in, you know, what I know and what I think I know. 
and you're not uh, unusual. There are so many people, particularly in the Midwest and the East Coast, that I consider uh, reasonably well-informed people. Uh, when I tell them that I grew up in U.S. internment camps as a child, they are shocked. They're just aghast that something like what I described to them actually existed in the United States. So uh, Allegiance is making an important contribution to uh, educating and enlightening Americans about our own American history. And I say this is an important story for all Americans because it was the United States Constitution that was egregiously violated. I mean, there was no due process. You know, we were innocent people had nothing to do with Pearl Harbor. And one morning, soldiers come up to our uh, home bearing uh, bayoneted rifles and order us out. And, you know, you have a right to know what the charges are when you're arrested, and then a right to challenge those charges in the court of law, a trial. There was nothing. Soldiers just came to our front door and ordered us out. They even raided orphanages. Can you imagine that? Oh my goodness. Uh, you know, parentless babies and and young children. What threat are they to the national security of the United States? But they took these infants out of orphanages and put them in uh, the internment camps. That's how hysterical the reaction to uh, Pearl Harbor was. And that's why this chapter is so important. That because we can be stampeded into becoming a country that you wouldn't recognize as America. We become a different country. So that's why this story of the internment of Japanese Americans is so important for all Americans to know about. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting you mentioned, you know, unlike Scotty and Chekhov in Star Trek, Sulu was not saddled with a Japanese accent, but your character in Allegiance does have the broken English of a recent immigrant. So do you see the character of Sam Kimura as either a tribute to your dad or maybe even a chance to, you know, apologize as you point out in the documentary? Well, uh, I played two characters in Allegiance. One is Sam, Sammy Kimura. And the other character is, uh, the grandfather, uh, Sammy's grandfather, a young man plays the character of uh, Sam, you know, Sammy Kimura in the, in the book of the play, and uh, he turns into an old man, old Sam Kimura, and I become uh, Sam Kimura as the uh, old uh, veteran of the uh, Second World War. But through the book of the play, I'm uh, playing Sam's grandfather, an immigrant from uh, Japan, and therefore... Uh, the uh, old man has a Japanese accent. Okay. Now, uh, Allegiance ran for nearly 150 performances on Broadway in the winter of 2015 and 16, and the Fathom Events presentation of both the filmed version of the play itself on December 11th and the Allegiance to Broadway behind-the-scenes documentary on December 4th sort of straddle Pearl Harbor Day. I assume that timing is not coincidental and certainly we know it's important to you to share this story now in 2018 since the play ran in quite a different political climate back then. Well, actually, in uh, 2016, we did screen uh, the film version of Allegiance 
uh, on December 7th. And also last year, 2017, we screened it on December 7th. Let me give you a little background on the uh, life of uh, Allegiance. We first opened, the world premiere of Allegiance was held at the Old Globe Theater in San Diego. It's one of the most distinguished regional theaters uh, throughout the United States. And uh, when the run closed uh, in San Diego, we broke all uh, box office records at that theater. The theater has been there for over 70 years, and we have the um, uh, record uh, for uh, box office and attendance at the Old Globe Theater. We opened in New York on Broadway 2015, which was also the year when Hamilton opened. And that was our bad luck, because Hamilton sucked up all the oxygen on Broadway. And so we had full houses for the run of uh, Allegiance, but we had to sell our tickets at a discount. You know, the half-price uh, ticket office on uh, on Broadway there, mm-hmm. uh, Duffy Square. So although we had full houses, our box office uh, was not up to what we needed to become a long run. But then, after the Broadway run, we wanted the story not to... Uh, end there, particularly because it's such an important story uh, for all Americans to know about. So we filmed it, but we filmed it in a way that used filmic techniques. You know, many Broadway musicals are are filmed, but that's with a stationary camera in the back with a full house. Uh, We did it that way once, and then we did another performance to an empty house, but multiple cameras and a crane. And so we could have long panning shots uh, of the uh, Japanese-Americans carrying their luggage and being herded about by military police. These epic scenes, we could have aerial shots and come and zoom in on the close-ups or have multiple cameras and we can get many different angles there. So this is not a, a typical opera or a rock concert or Broadway musical that's been filmed, but it uses uh, filmic techniques. So we've been able to uh, uh, get the story out to more people beyond the uh, Broadway run. Of course, after the Broadway run, the run continued here in Los Angeles. And again, here in Los Angeles, we uh, broke all uh, box office records. So uh, we wanted to uh, maintain that. And when we ran, when Fathom Events ran uh, Allegiance in 2016, we broke all box office records for uh, these one-night-only screenings. And so uh, we have records. And with, if it weren't for Hamilton, we would have broken <laughs> Broadway records too, I'm sure. But uh, because of that, We've been running it on December 7th, uh, the last two years. But this year, we um, uh, developed the documentary, The Making of Allegiance. And so uh, we decided to straddle December 7th. And the uh, documentary of The Making of uh, Allegiance is going to be screened on December 4th. And then the next uh, a week after that, on December 8, uh, 11th, we're screening the musical itself. So uh, you're, get, you're getting a double whammy this year. 
Yeah. And then the, the documentary is wonderful. Dave and I both enjoyed uh, an advanced screening of it and it's just great. Oh, good. But I have a question for you though, about your Broadway uh, aspirations, because, you know, Allegiance features well-known recognizable names like Tele Leung and Leah Salonga, but it also features some notable Broadway newcomers who I really enjoyed seeing in the documentary, like Greg Watanabe and mm-hmm. some guy named George Takei, who also is a newcomer to Broadway. Oh, I, I've, I've worked <laughs> in New York before. Okay. That's not my first New York performance. I've worked with, uh, well, in fact, back in 1960, we did a, a civil rights musical called Fly Blackbird here in Los Angeles mm-hmm. in 1959. And we took it to New York and played off Broadway. And then uh, I've also worked with the American Place Theater. I did a, a play, a drama titled um, The Year of the Dragon, and at the Manhattan Theater Club, I did The Wash. But this is this is my first Broadway. Broadway uh, debut, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, was that always a dream of yours growing up, to act on Broadway? The theater has always been my primary love. Okay. I mean, I was a theater student at UCLA, and the, the reason I went to New York with the um, Fly Blackbird back in 1960 was because it, that's where my heart really resides. Actually, we're bi-coastal. We have uh, an apartment in New York and our primary home is here in Los Angeles because uh, film and television pays a little bit better than Broadway. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I want to touch on the documentary a, a, again for a second, because it shows the director, the producer and others debating the tone of the play and whether or not the first act had too much humor and whether it should have gone darker. In retrospect, how do you feel the play balanced the sense of community in the camps with the irony of the celebrations after the bombs are dropped? Well, the primary thing that uh, I was going for was to humanize that story, you know, because there are a few paragraphs in history books, and there are some mentions in uh, in Hell to Eternity, uh, Jeffrey uh, Hunter uh, movie, in which I uh, had a, had a role, and uh, Go for Broke was another uh, film that uh, touched on the internment. But you know, th- these are just mentions of that chapter of American history. And uh, we wanted with this musical to humanize it. And we wanted to get humor and uh, some lightness into it because that is all, all of that, uh, the uh, dances and the, the baseball games were part and parcel of the internment experience. As I said, my father was a block manager and when we first arrived, our camp was in the swamps of uh, Arkansas. There were 10 camps all together, all in the most hellish and most isolated places in the country. We were in Arkansas. Allegiance takes place at the, at the camp in Wyoming. And we went there just to get the sense and feel of it. It is, I mean, we drove for like about two hours through nothing. I mean, it was just barren, high plains. And, you know, I thought to myself, if I, if I were going there, being driven there with armed guards all around me, how would I have felt the sense of desolation and really being isolated from any other, you know, humanity was really depressing. So when we first arrived at these camps, people were very, understandably, very depressed and, and despondent. And 
my father, as a block manager, felt that we had to build a sense of community and how to get people to uh, get out of themselves and their their own woe is me. And my father was a baseball player. He, uh, he was from San Francisco, and he was a member of a, a Japanese-American uh, of a baseball team in San Francisco, and they traveled around the uh, Bay Area playing other Japanese-American teams. And so he wanted to uh, get that spirit of uh, competition and, and rooting for the team going. And so uh, he built, uh, he got some young men to be volunteers, and he built a, uh, a baseball diamond. And that did get people, you know, up and developing a sense of community. In Arkansas, this was on drained swampland. But when it rained, it turned right back into a swamp. And we had to make that trek to the mess hall three times a day, all, every one of us in the block. And seniors who um, were very frail couldn't make it to the mess hall. Their feet would sink into the muck, and they they didn't have the strength to pull their feet out of the muck. So young men had to carry these uh, elderly people on their back and take them to the mess hall. And, you know, they couldn't do that every day, uh, three times a day. So my father organized a crew to build um, a narrow boardwalk connecting all of the barracks to one, the mess hall, and two, the latrine, two, two places that people had to get to. <laughs> and so, and then the dance sequences too. They were not artificial. We really did have dances because teenagers needed to have a, a place where they can socialize. And so uh, these dances were allowed by the camp command once every couple of months. And so at, uh, on those uh, designated uh, evenings after dinner, the, the uh, tables and benches were all cleared off and uh, a record player was brought in and, and teenagers had their dances. So the, all that is not there in, in uh, allegiance as a, uh, a traditional Broadway uh, musical numbers. They were organic to the uh, uh, experience of uh, being incarcerated like that. And those dance numbers are wonderful, wouldn't you say? Oh, yes. <laughs> Have you seen it? Yeah, we saw bits and pieces. I think Dave and I both concentrated on the documentary and kind of got sucked oh, into that. Oh, you haven't that. seen uh, Allegiance yet? I haven't seen it in its entirety, no. Oh. Right, and I I haven't seen it in its entirety either, but I, I guess one thing that, that just occurred to me, you know, you mentioned uh, about San Francisco and, and baseball, and I, I remember that line, and I, I don't remember which character points out that we're at war with Italy, yet everybody still loves Joe DiMaggio, who is a native San Franciscan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there's that irony, you know, but, you know, we were a small minority, Italian-Americans and German-Americans. I mean, we were at war with Italy and Germany, but Italian-Americans and German-Americans looked like the rest of America. We look different. That's very telling, yes. So it was not just war hysteria. It was naked, raw racism. Yeah. We look different. Yeah, and I think that's just a, a powerful message that people can get from the play. And I'm so happy that not only are we getting a, a replay of the Fathom Events run of the play, but also this documentary to go with it. So I urge our listeners to check out the documentary on December 4th, 
before seeing the play on December 11th for a second time, if you've already seen it, but also for those people who haven't checked it out yet. Yeah. So thanks so much for joining us, George. I'm so glad you were able to talk to us about Allegiance. Well, thank you for the chance to talk it up. <laughs> but I, I wish you all live long and prosper as Allegiance will. <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks, George. Good chatting with you. So it was such an honor to talk to George Takei about this play and just to nerd out a little bit and sneak in a little question about Star Trek here and there. We did our best, right, Dave? <laughs> well, yeah. And, and look, I'm sure he expects that. And yeah. <laughs> what a gracious man. And if you want to check out the Fathom events, uh, I know I checked my local theaters. It's there in all of the ones in my general vicinity. So check your local listings for Allegiance to Broadway, December 4th, and Allegiance on December 11th. But I want to mention before we go that this is actually going to be the final Den of Geek podcast. And I know that may be sprung on our audience a little bit, but we have big plans in store for our entire podcast network in 2019. So stay tuned for some announcements about that. This podcast is actually going to be evolving into a completely new one, to feature some of the interviews that we've been featuring on G news, but it's actually going to have a new name and we hope you will follow us to that new feed. And again, stay tuned to the site for news about our evolving podcast slate. So I guess Dave, that's going to be it for this installment and the den of geek podcast in general, but go ahead and check out the latest news that we've been covering on denofgeek.com and we're definitely going to be sharing some more behind the scenes content from your favorite television shows movies and more in a brand new podcast and if you enjoyed this episode even though this is the final one you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcast whether apple Podcasts, stitcher spotify or soundcloud that's right it'll still be around for people to dig in as an archive so thanks for listening and we'll see you on the next one Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.